Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the live stream with David Spratt and the Climate Accord Working Group. Um, it's a pretty exciting night and I hope you really enjoy what David has to impart to us and also the working group and uh, the wonderful work that they're doing. This is being recorded and we will stick to 50 minutes or less. That's our goal. So um, it's great that you've joined us tonight. I'm Julie Lyford. I'm currently the Chair of Women's Environmental Leadership Weller. I'm a former nurse, a counsellor, a climate campaigner since 1989, a coal and gas activist, and I'm wearing my rising tide earrings because the blockade of the Newcastle port will happen in November. So join us if you can. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm coming here to you um, from Warramai and Biripai country, which is Gloucester, New South Wales. And these lands have never been ceded and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and also acknowledge all the lands that we're all coming together on tonight. Thanks to the MPs and minor parties and campaigners that have joined us, you are in a constant struggle to engage the public on issues that matter. You are leaders and that's why we're engaging you, whether you're an MP, a candidate or supporting a party or even an independent. And they're doing some fantastic work. I hope we can all agree that a safe climate is the most immediate and critical issue because it is one of survival of us and the planet. We're going to hear a 20-minute um, presentation by David Spratt on a paper released last week by the National Centre for Climate Restoration, breakthroughonline.org.au. We'll send all these links to you later. There is a link to the paper posted in the live stream chat if you wanted to pop over to that. And the presentation is not just on how bad it is because we all know that. It's actually what the solutions are. So that's where our focus really needs to be. And how is climate rescue different? We are in the climate end game, but there's something lacking in the climate conversations we are having, and that is vision. And that's what we're wanting to impart to you tonight. And I'm sure a lot of you have vision as well. We dream of stopping um, a coal mine, shutting down a coal plant, stopping new gas, rewilding, sustainable agriculture, and we even dream of bringing integrity to government. And we know there is some integrity in government, but we need a lot more of it, and that's moral um, integrity because there's a lot of moral culpability at the moment not addressing our climate issues. None of these actions alone, though, uh, will get us where we need to be for a safe climate and a safe future. There is a ground shift in rural communities and they're unifying um, as we had the rally last week in Sydney for the coal seam gas issue in Narrabri. The Great Barrier Reef is a classical example of greenwashing while the trajectory of heating and devastation continues. Winning slowly means losing. What does that mean? We need the immediate call and the urgency to be recognised and actioned immediately, and that's the key. What we don't hear in the climate end game is anyone talking about stopping heating, let alone restoring a safe climate. The Climate Rescue Accord is about that vision because for work that is so gargantuan, we can't get there if we don't have a vision, and that needs to guide our strategy. That's what we're introducing tonight, the vision and the strategy, and what do you want to get out of tonight? Climate rescue buy-in, an understanding of the horror as well as the solutions and a positive vision for the future. We need some commitment to campaign on climate rescue and we need your engagement in this campaign. So I'm going to hand over now to David. 
David Spratt is Research Director for the National Centre for Climate Restoration and co-author of Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action. And I can tell you now all the knitting nanas in New South Wales have read this and are very engaged for many years in David's work. His work, David's work on climate science, tipping points and existential risk and on climate politics and the climate emergency has been translated into seven languages. David deconstructs IPCC climate science and working with climate scientists, reconstructs what is known into an actual way out of our current trajectory. David wants you to know that his presentation will be available to you after the event. Um, the paper, Accelerating Climate Disruption and the Strategy to Reduce, Remove and Repair, the three R's, was released on the 13th of September. The Climate Rescue Accord Working Group, following David's presentation, will present the Accord goals and the next steps. So with no further ado, I hand you over to David Spratt. Thanks, Julie. Um, I will share my screen and we hope this will all work yep okay um so as as we know um we've had some incredible um events in the climate system uh recently it seems to be accelerating and disrupting um july was 1.45 degrees warmer than pre-industrial august 1.68 which is sort of mind-blowing um and so there's been record heat uh there's also been um uh, record surface temperatures, uh, sea surface temperatures around the world. So the heat is really building up and it's leading people, uh, scientists to say things like this, we're hitting record-breaking extremes much sooner than I expected. That's frightening, scary and concerning and it really suggests we're not aware of what's coming up as we thought we were. That's Sarah Perkins from the University of New South Wales and Walt Meyer, one of the great glaciologists talking about Antarctica. It's so far out, so anything we've seen, it's almost mind-blowing. So that's a sort of response to the disruption we're seeing at the moment. Um, uh, I, I just want to sort of ask a question, where are we going? And uh, this graphic is, is really, this is the really stunning. This is the US government's projection of, um, of emissions from the, of the electricity uh, sector out to 2050. And you can see um, it's going from there to there. It's only going to drop 20% by 2050. So while governments might talk about uh, net zero, in fact, this is not net zero, this is not zero. And the same thing uh, is happening in Australia. If we look at the emissions, emissions since 2005, that is in 17 years, have dropped 1.4% in total uh, if you uh, exclude the land use change. So in terms of actual greenhouse gas emissions, they've actually gone up in the last 10 years. Um, yeah, this is from the Financial Times. This is estimates of what the three largest exporters of, of liquid natural, uh, natural gas will do over the next 10 years. And those three big ones are Australia, Qatar and, and the US. And between now and 2030, the amount of LNG that they plan to export will actually double. And so the, the UNFCCC, the UN, uh, UN's climate uh uh, body says by 2030 emissions might be 0.3 percent lower than 2019 that is in the next 10 years emissions are not going to drop sharply as is necessary we can remember a few years ago scientists said if you want a chance of two degrees emissions have got to halve between 2020 and 2030 and that is simply uh, not going uh, on on the current um 
uh, indications. Here's a really important uh, graph that explains something what's uh, what's going on. So when you burn fossil fuels, uh, a byproduct of sulfur products called sulfate aerosols, sulfur dioxide, which are in the, the atmosphere for a short period of time, but they have a really strong cooling effect before they're rained out. And that cooling effect of sulfate aerosols traditionally said to be half a degree, Jim Hansen says up to one and a half degrees. So if those sulfates weren't a byproduct of fossil fuels, the system would already be one degree um, uh, hotter than it is. And we can see that impact in this chart on the left where it was decided to reduce the amount of sulfates in uh, in, in shipping because uh, they use very dirty bunker oil. And you can see after 2019, this grey line, the amount of sulfates coming out of ships dropped to almost zero, and then the amount of energy imbalance in the system went up, which might be a clue to what's happening at the moment. So um, in terms of Earth's energy imbalance, uh, which is the difference between the amount of radiation coming and going at the top of the atmosphere, so Earth's energy imbalance is actually an indicator of the amount of warming in the system or, or future warming. And you can see um, uh, it's it's really ramping up, particularly in the last few years. And uh, that current amount is probably equivalent to another degree of warming. So that's more or less colloquially what's in the system at the moment. Um, so that's why Jim Hansen, often known as the, the, the godfather of, of modern climate science, so the former director of uh, climate science for NASA, says that he thinks warming will accelerate in the next period because we're losing that um, that temporary aerosol cooling. Uh, and um, in fact, you know, we've just had a couple of months. A couple of months is not a trend, but we've had a couple of months even warmer than his uh, his uh, projection. So he's saying that that increased Earth imbalance means that warming will accelerate by as much as 50 to 100% in the next few decades. That is, the amount of, of warming per decade from now on will be greater than it has been up till now. And what are the consequences of this? Uh, a very interesting piece of work which came out earlier this year where people said, looking in the future, this is probably 2055, 30 odd years away, um, where in the earth will there be temperatures that humans have never previously experienced outside uh, here's historically experienced temperatures? And these are, are areas in summer, obviously in the hot season, where it would be practically too hot to live without an air conditioner. And this is what they came, came up with. And you can see it's a quarter of Australia, as well as uh, a good bit of India and Pakistan and Southeast Asia and across the Middle East, Africa, and, and the Amazon. So in these areas, it may not be possible to live in summer without air conditioning. Uh, um, in fact, Johan Rockstrom from the um, Potsdam Institute said a third of the planet would be uninhabitable, and that's maybe 30 years away. Um, that heat is going to, and uh, other impacts on crop yields, a light is to drop crop yields by 25 to 50% across Australia. Look at India, look at China, um, uh, look at the United States. So we're going to have uh, a, a real decrease in, in crop yields. Um, and so we're seeing the sort of stories we're getting now of the US special envoy two weeks ago in Australia wrecking, uh, uh, talking about a, a food shortage um, in, in August because of uh, the extreme weather there. India, the largest exporter of rice in the world, um, uh, banned all rice exports. 
Um, China has got similar food security problems and El Nino in itself will threaten the world uh, rice supply. So food and water are pretty much at the basis of what we do. So a great report was done by Chatham House, the leading UK think tank two years ago, a climate risk assessment, where they looked at all the climate hazards relating to food and water, rainfall, heat waves, weather patterns, extreme events, and then worked their way systematically through the consequences. And here's what they came up with. They said, and this is by 2050, they said, climate disruption will cause social tensions, unrest, protests, riots, which will lead to state failure, that is governments failing, large-scale migration and conflict. So that is where we are heading. And then they looked at the more systemic risks, so not only uh, food and water, but things like um, health and pests and, uh, and, and business disruption. And they came up with a list of what they thought climate change would produce by 2050, which is, uh, as you can see, large-scale migration and displacement of people, both internally and externally, armed conflict, the rise of extremist groups, conflict between people and states, civil war and war, and in terms of the economy, um, uh, fall in asset prices, rapidly rising commodity prices, falling stock markets, and last of all, financial market collapse. So um, Chatham House, whose charts we just saw, said they think by 2050 on the current trajectory, the one we're on, that cascading climate impacts will drive political instability and greater national insecurity and fuel regional and international conflicts. So that's where we're heading. So uh, we're at about 1.2 degrees trend at the moment, um, even though we have these 1.5s. Uh, in the long run, in the long run, over centuries, um, each one degree will result in 10 to 20 metres of sea level rise. Um, that rate will keep on going like that. Uh, it's well established it will be at 1.5 by 2030. In fact, perhaps before, we're certainly up um, or close to a 1.5 degree year for, for the year that's that started in the middle of this year. Um, and uh, on present trends, we, we will be at two degrees before 2050. Why does this matter? Well, because of that sulfate uh, problem, when you reduce fossil fuels, you reduce the sulfates, you remove the cooling and you get more warming. So, and this is why it's in red, reducing emissions alone will have no significant impact on warming trends over the next two years. That's not a reason not to reduce emissions, but relying on, on reducing emissions to, to bend down the curve in the short run will simply not work because of the aerosol dilemma. In red, mitigation alone, and this is part of our strategy, will not stop two degrees of warming. Um, of course, um, the situation is already dangerous. Just at 1.2 degrees, we have already passed, passed tipping points for the Arctic sea ice, for coral reefs, uh, and for the poles at both reefs, uh, uh, north and south, and for Amazon. That is, those systems are already moving to a discreetly different state. And there's a, a cluster of further tipping points will happen uh, between 1.5 and 2, that is, before 2050, in the next 30 years. Um, uh, the other point to be made is that two degrees is not a point of system stability. By the time you get to two degrees, there are so many feedbacks in the system, as Rockstrom from the Potsdam Institute says, if we go beyond two degrees, it's very likely we have caused so many tipping points that you've probably added another degree. 
So we're actually heading towards three degrees, which um, US intelligence analysts say would likely result in, in, in war and outright conflict around the world. So that's where we're headed. Um, Will Stephan, the great Australian scientist who died earlier this year, says there's a critical point in all of this beyond which we lose control of the system. We lose control of the system. Where's that point? Um, I think it's I think it's not above two degrees. I think it's between 1.5 and 2, and some scientists have said that, which is where we're heading. So this is our great existential dilemma. And John Schellenhuber, the former director of the Potsdam Institute, says, if we continue down the present path, there's a very big risk that we will just end our civilization. Human species will survive, but we will destroy what we have built up. And that, I think, is, is, is the truth of the matter. Don't look at the chart. Um, it's a fancy way of saying the following. Whoops. Climate change is an existential risk, so particular focus must be given to one question, and this is really important. In red, what is the plausible worst-case scenario and what do we have to do to avoid it? And that's a question I want, uh, I want to uh, answer. And the worst-case scenario is that we will get to two degrees in the next 30 years and there will be so many feedbacks that the system will run away from us. So what's safe? Um, you, you will talk a lot about a safe climate. Andrew King from the University of Melbourne. From a geologic perspective, a justifiable aim is one akin to pre-industrial conditions, that is taking the atmosphere back to where it was uh, before we started putting fossil fuels in the atmosphere, that is 280 parts per million. James Hansen, the great NASA scientist, we will need to return to a global climate no warmer than the middle of the 20th century and somewhat cooler. And in the middle of the 20th century, the warming was about a quarter of a degree. And Schellenhuber, likewise, our survival may well depend on how much we are able to draw down CO2 back to 280, back to pre-industrial. So this is what a safe climate is, going back to where we were uh, before uh, fossil fuels um, uh, drove up greenhouse gases by more than 50%. So how do we do that? Schematically, impacts and temperature up on this scale time. This is our path of emissions just going up and up and up. If we get to zero fast, we can obviously bend that temperature and impact, impacts curve down. But if that danger level for the system running away from us is down here, which I think is reasonable, then obviously uh, getting to zero is not enough. So what else can we do? we can draw down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and that will slowly reduce the temperature and the impacts back to a safe level over time. But we've still got this long period of time, perhaps, you know, most of the rest of this century, when the temperature and the impacts are going to be above that critical level. And so the, the only way to... to um, answer that dilemma is to try and actively cool the planet for that period of time until the, the drawdown can work. So that is, is what is called uh, the three-lever strategy to reduce, remove and repair. Um, so active, in red, active cooling is vital. I fear that if we don't have active cooling, then uh, we will trip tipping points and, and a cascade of warmings that will um, 
uh, take the, the climate system beyond the capacity of humans to control it and for human civilization to survive. Um, in our report, which Julie mentioned, um, which I'll show in a minute, uh, the sort of carbon drawdown, uh, carbon dioxide removal um, options uh, are the nature-based solutions like uh, building up ecosystems, regenerative land management, uh, marine upwelling, uh, iron fertilisation, and then there are technical solutions, negative emissions constructing using wood instead of, instead of cement for um, for construction and so on. And in terms of cooling, uh, there's a work that some of you may know of by Ye Tao about uh, surface mirrors to reflect more ra ra radiation back, marine cloud brightening, which has been tested in Queensland at the moment. The big one, solar radiation management, that is putting some sulfates back in the atmosphere to cool it down. Uh, some of these are obviously uh, well-established, like ecosystem se sequestrations. Some of them are tentative and some of them haven't been proved. But that's the range of options we need to look at. So Sir David King and the Climate um, Crisis Group in the UK have termed this language, which we've adopted, of reduce emissions urgently, remove CO2 and repair the system by cooling. So as Julie said, we uh, released a report last week uh, called Accelerated Climate Disruption and the Strategy to Reduce, Remove and Repair, which summarises the argument I've just given to you. Uh, it can be downloaded from the site uh, at the bottom. And to reiterate the main messages out of my talk, Zero emissions at emergency speed within a decade is crucial. But the earth is already too hot. We're seeing that at the moment with the incredible events around the world and large-scale carbon drawdown is vital. The third, the damage is and will become dangerous before these longer-term solutions are effective. So a safe means of immediate cooling is critical to protect people and nature and return us to a safe climate. And that's the um, end of my talk. I'll just leave that up for one second. If you want to uh, email us, info at breakthroughonline.org.au and we can send you this PowerPoint if you would like a copy. And thanks very much, Julie. And I hope I was almost within time. Um, actually, you were fantastic. So you were five minutes um, early. Oh, that's <laughs> so good. Yeah, that was that was that was brilliant. Um, I, wow, that was a pretty profound. I, I haven't actually um, been exposed to um, a lot of this work um, mm. for a while, and wow, that's that's it's some pretty fascinating Sorry, solutions there. It's a big story that needs some big, courageous political leadership in response. Absolutely. Is there anything that you, just because you did finish so early, and I know we're going on to the working group now, and please, um, for people watching, um, put some questions in the chat that will be monitored. And if the questions aren't answered um, tonight, they will be answered in a newsletter further further on uh, in a couple of weeks. But um David, is there something that you personally really want to kind of say to people that are listening oh, look, about I, your work? Well, um, I mean, when we did a book, Climate Code, where the journalist rang me up and, you know, said, what do you think? And I was doing a few things and I said, well, look, the problem with climate politics is that, that people think you can negotiate with the laws of physics and chemistry. 
And it actually turned up in an editorial in the age that next Saturday. And I hadn't thought about that, but I mean, this is assumption in politics that everything is subject to negotiations to deals, you know, a bit for me, a bit for you, a trade-off. I mean, that's how all politics work. But when we come to the Earth system, we actually can't negotiate with the Earth system. If 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 we don't do the right thing, it will it will simply roll along and roll over. So I mean, I think we have to be brutally honest about the science. We can't negotiate with it as policymakers tend to. The other thing I, I think that is important and really is encouraging, I think recognition of these three levers is now really on the public agenda compared to even five years ago. Um, I'm seeing more and more people, even people working for NGOs, uh, saying, yeah, look, I can see your point now. We do need these three. Uh, and obviously, a lot of the drawdown options are already available. And uh, I think there's a, a really appreciation. The fact that Sir David King, who was uh, the chief scientist in the UK for 12 years, he advised two Labor prime ministers as, and one Conservative prime minister, is out saying, we need to do these three three things. And he's got a large group at Cambridge sort of researching this stuff, shows that these ideas are not out on the fringe. They're actually in the centre uh, of, of work of, of some really great scientists and, and researchers around the world. Wow. Oh, thank you. That that was, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty profound stuff and, and it's also pretty exciting. I, You know, climate despair sits with me sometimes and well, um, yeah. it's so good to actually have this window of opportunity kind of like that's been happening but mm. now becoming aware of that and I think it will also help a lot of other people to um, actually become really proactive in, in looking at these solutions. I mean, Julia, I think, I mean, a, a lot of people... Um, um, a lot of people say, um, oh, you know, this relationship between hope and despair, I mean, you know, this contradiction, how do you resolve that? And I say, look, it's neither. It's about courage. You know, it's Absolutely. about it's it's about courage to uh to face the um to face the science that is, understand what the solutions are and you know, and work with all our might to do it. Julie, the other thing I'll just mention is that a longer version of this, which goes through it more thoroughly, we did a couple of years uh, in, a, in a project called Climate Reality Check. So if people want to go to climaterealitycheck.net, climaterealitycheck.net, I'll, they'll, get, they'll get a fuller presentation of these ideas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that was wonderful. Okay, we will um, move on to the Climate Action Working Group now. And I'd like to introduce Antoinette, Carmen, Adam and Bryony, who will say just a quick, 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 uh, quick few words about themselves. So over to you and then that will be for 10 minutes and then we will go into a Q&A. Uh, no worries. I think I'm up first. Um, thank you, Julie. Uh, my name is Antoinette. I am from the Australian Progressives. I'm an executive on the board for that minor political party. I'm also a nurse as well. It seems to be a common factor. Um, I'm also a job rep um, and I've also got a recycling business of my own and this is one of my um, pet things is the environment. It's so important. Um, I, so I'm just going to continue with the slides until you get to the next person. So um we're from the working group of the Climate Rescue Accord. Um, a few months ago, representatives from a number of federally registered political parties started working on a common climate framework, and this is what has come out of it. 
This is the name and the logo that we created for the campaign um, that we are starting. It's the three R's that um, Dave was just talking about, reduce, redraw, repair. repair. Um, the name of the campaign is the Climate Rescue Accord, as I said, um, and we've got the website up and running now, which is climaterescue.net. We'll go to the next slide. Um, so we are representatives from um, several federally registered parties. We're putting aside any differences that we have um, because we all need to get on board for this issue. Championing goals and actions that will actually save us um, and demanding that current governments act on these. Um, we are all looking at each other and we're all agreeing that the major parties have failed us. Um, they won't even produce roadmap to get us to zero. Um, and they're still opening mines and subsidising our destruction. So we decided we needed to move. Next slide. Over to Adam. So the things I'm going to cover in the next couple of slides, um, David covered very, very well. So I'll just highlight some key points that, that um, brought us together as a working group. And the first is that the current goals that we have around climate change are inadequate and don't actually reflect what we need, which is a safe climate, and we need a safe climate for the survival of people, animals, and the planet. At the moment, we talk about net zero. What's net zero? It's ridiculous. We talk about 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees. People are giving up on 1.5 degrees. But as David's already said, that um, those are dangerous uh, levels of climate change and dangerous for many other um, people, animals, and the planet. Uh, next slide. Zero is just not enough. Zero will see us get into 1.5, 2 degrees and higher. And as David pointed out, um, that could see runaway climate change where we end up in places that we cannot live. So if we want to meet a um, achieve a safe climate, we must we must go beyond um, just zero, certainly net zero, and we need to uh, use all the levers that are available to us. If we look on the next slide, David went through this figure really um, well, but I think this is a really important figure for us to become familiar with in this uh, campaign um, and the work that we do around a safe climate and climate rescue. We have to go to zero as fast as possible. Then there's a lot of work to be done to draw down. Um, but as David pointed out, there's this period that we may be in dangerous climate change if we don't use active cooling as safe passage from um, where we are now through to a point where we've drawn down enough of the carbon out of the atmosphere to be back in a safe climate. Uh, and now I'll, I'll just quickly introduce myself before I, I move on. Um, my name's uh, Dr. Adam Cardellini. Um, I am a delegate uh, from the Animal Justice Party. I'm liaising with the Animal Justice Party on this project, and um, I'm an environmental scientist in my day job. On to the next people. Thanks, Adam. Um, my name's Bryony Edwards and I'm on the Fusion Executives. Um, and I'll talk about, first of all, the accord, the, sorry, the purpose of the accord. So the purpose of the accord is kind of the, what's the vision? It's to initiate, well, the vision is a safe climate and survival. And the purpose of the accord is to get us there and initiate the required action to stop global global heating 
secure survival and set her a course to restore a safe climate so people's animals and ecosystems can flourish. And the accord goals that would underpin that are to hold average temperature rise to a minimum uh, to uh, the minimum possible, ensuring that two degrees is not breached or reached, and that temperatures return below half a degree of warming. And that we set a course to reduce greenhouse gas concentrations to pre-industrial or safe levels based on credible scientific evidence. The actions that underpin this, these, these are like the non-negotiables, is to facilitate urgent R&D in the area, area of immediate cooling or repair strategies that we stop fossil fuel expansion, that we stop deforestation and land use change that re releases CO2 and also reduces the se sequestration potential, that we stop human-induced sources of methane release and, you know, we're, we're over 500 parts per million if we, if we include all the um, carbon dioxide equivalents that are out there. We talk about 520 in terms of CO2, but we're over 500 in terms of greenhouse, in terms of CO2 equivalents. Um, and we develop an evidence-based roadmap to near zero across all sectors for emergency implementation. That includes energy, transport, consumption, manufacturing, agriculture, land use and construction. And then our general sort of theory of change or strategy for the Accord is to unify as many political groups and entities in Australia as we can, but quickly we'll, we want to go take this international as well and start talking to minor parties. The major parties, as we've said, have failed us, so we're starting with, with crossbenchers and minor parties. And we'll support any candidate that is campaigning on the three R's and we'll leverage action from sitting, sitting governments. And what we want from you, and I think I'm going to hand over to Carmen now. Oh, thanks, Bryony. <clears throat> so my name's Carmen Leif Jenkins and I'm a Reason Party representative. I'm on the Reason Party executive and I run the policy committee and write the policies for the party. Um I'm living in climate terror, as I'm sure many of us are. It's really scary times. Um, and I'm really pleased to have been invited to be a part of this accord. So thanks, Bryony, for pulling so much of this together. Um, it's been really fantastic. And thanks, David, for frightening the absolute crap out of me even more. <laughs> so, but um, so our strategy is um, we talked about our strategy, didn't we? But what we want from you is to sign up to our campaign at climaterescue.net. Um, and for every minor party, every candidate, all grassroots campaign on survival and a safe climate based on the three R's. So I think what we want to do now is move toward this language and how important it is for this language um, to shift from net zero to this reduce the redraw and what's the other word the three r's anyway so we'll be going with that so then the next steps um which julie will also cover as well but just very quickly to overview will be signing up for the newsletter <clears throat> establishing an accord executive committee um, so we're the working group but there'll be an executive committee that can go forward to keep kind of driving this process um developing which will be around policy options um and taking the climate rescue accord global so, and I guess the last word is the major parties have given up. 
we won't survive the current path. Um, we just won't make it unless we can focus on the three R's. What we need is hope, and we'd really like you to join us in a shared strategy um, for climate rescue. Thanks. Thanks, um, everyone. That was that was a great overview, and um, now we will go to some questions. So the questions are for David and the working group to respond to, and I'll just reiterate that um, any unanswered questions that may be in the chat, um, they can be responded to after the live stream if we don't get around to all of them. So I will um, – there's some really good comments uh, – from Miles, glad to hear a research-backed approach. It's often a rarity in politics. Um, there, a question here, is this an argument to introduce slow lead-time lead power sources like hydro, fusion and nuclear fission? That's pass over to you, David. Um, yeah. You're on mute. You're on mute, David. Uh, obviously, in, in in all the in in the three R's, what we've got to do is 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 what is uh, safe, ecologically safe, and the most efficient and the lowest cost. Uh, and uh, from that point of view, nuclear power is out because it's just so expensive; it doesn't even make it to the starting line. So, I don't think we should be pejorative about technologies in general. But I mean, the test is 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 for for anything that we're going to do is it is it is of net social and environmental benefit. And I think that's that's the the rule that sits above all the decisions that are made. Uh, obviously, in a thing where we have to. Uh, because our life literally depends on it, uh, research a really wide range of technologies, see what's feasible, see what can we get, we can get quickly down the cost curve uh, and, and, and take it from there with that net social and ecological environmental benefit as, as the guideline. Thank you. And William has said the best drawdown methods should be biological, which is, which is you know, following on from your comments. Self-reproduction allows scalability to global extent. Of these, ocean fertilisation coupled with farming of selected phytoplankton and larger consumers, I think that that and there's a, um, uh, yeah, so there are quite a few comments in the chat, but would the working group like to address any of the questions that we've had so far? Or are there other questions that you um, have heard about? So I'll, I'll address one, a couple of the questions. I think that people are asking what's the best approach um, from yeah. here. And I think one of the things about the um, Climate Rescue Accord is that uh, what we're trying to bring together is parties to um, to campaign on the broad level accord, like the non-negotiables, but then the details on what particular parties focus on on their policy platforms is really up to them as a party. But those non-negotiables of um, of zero drawdown and um, repair are really what we're interested in. In getting out there into the into the Australian political system and wider, um, and then as we set up our policy working groups, we can start mm -hmm. to have conversations about building out those policies, and and different parties will have different policies depending on their particular interests, I think, and their particular um, concerns. 
Great. Look, and there's a couple more questions, but Simon from Fusion, the science is not negotiable, but sadly we live in a post-truth world and having the facts and evidence is not enough to speak for itself. We have to come together to sell it. So I think that's a really great comment. Natasha's question is, is there any thinking about joining with Teal candidates and or Climate 200 with this accord? So we invited the crossbench. We, you know, sent formal invites to all crossbench members and that, you know, of course, including the Teals. We also invited every minor, any every progressive minor party that hasn't demonstrated their outright climate denier mm. um, in their policies and, and the way they talk. So, yeah, absolutely. We've, we've reached out to the Teals. I think we had some, there was some commitment for staffs, uh, staffers to attend tonight. So that's really good. That's great. And the second question from Ruth is, what would you want elected politicians, e.g. crossbenchers, to do right now? What are we asking? And Declare we'll a climate them. emergency. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and actually mean it, you know, and and then commit to it. Um, there was uh, Philip Sutton a number of years ago wrote a model climate emergency mobilisation act. And it was it wasn't all the detail of what would happen, but it was how government would restructure to to make that change happen. And um, so it wasn't about the detail, and I think that's really important. It's, it was about the how government, which is just so terrible at doing, or can you know, COVID demonstrated government could do things quickly and it could mobilise at every level. Um, yeah, but I'll leave it at that. I think the in addition to declaring a climate emergency, because I think we've seen that the climate emergency approach um, has been important uh, to shift the discussion, but it's a lot of governments around the world have used it as a piece, a piece of performance, really, and haven't actually backed that up with action. And I think the um, climate rescue accord is an intent is sort of building off of climate emergency, and that should happen in conjunction with a climate emergency to say, okay, we recognise there's an emergency, the actions that we need to take are zero, drawdown and um, mm. and repair. And the details about some of those, like zero and drawdown, we've got a lot of science around that. Uh, repair, a lot of our, well, some R&D needs to be done uh, before we can make decisions, but that we need to be committing to um, to looking into those things and getting onto them and for mm -hmm. zero and, and drawdown we just need to do those things far faster um, and I think Miles has mentioned well if there is a diversity of policy options then clearly science is negotiable in a certain sense well I'm not sure that that's necessarily true I just think that there are like we are in a political world <laughs> we're talking amongst a range of different political groups mm -hmm. who have different interests um, and some things that some political groups find palatable others may not i know my positions on things people in this live stream probably wouldn't be particularly um interested in pursuing but uh i think that's in the details uh, for, for mm. specific par parties and i think there, there's a really important point about the climate emergency declaration that has been made with your group that um the, the what what we're asking for is similar in some ways but the us uh, they're more broken down and repair 
which is the critical um, part of it, was not explicitly addressed in the climate emergency declaration. Um, so the it's yeah, it's 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 um, pretty important. Um, so there's Sorry, one. Julie, last, yep. I just want to go super simple and just say that immediately, immediately, what we need to do is not open any more mines and stop yes. subsidising fossil fuels. Absolutely, and that's part of the work that I'm involved in. And um, <laughs> some of us have been successful, but there is a lot out there still to yes. Um, that's that's great. And there's just a question here from Owen: What do people feel about imposing tariffs on countries who give out fossil fuel subsidies, like Australia? Good idea. Yeah, it is a good idea because, because otherwise emissions escape from country and country through through trade. So um, border border protection for fossil fuel emissions is a good form of border protection, unlike other ones which aren't. Yeah, and um, so there is a question here from Bridget: What more can we do at the local government level, in your opinions? Um, I, as a former local government councillor, we had a climate um, declaration in 2009, which is National, National Party heartland, a uh, very conservative council. So it's about the courage to push and the courage to actually make sure the conversation is happening. And I think local government is such a vital part of this conversation and the platform to get change. It's where we can really be effective. But I'll hand over to the, um, the panel. For other comments, I would say even if a federal um, climate emergency declaration was declared, they would then turn to state and and local government and say, "Now, what are you going to do?" And so they wouldn't be they wouldn't be prescribing the actions for the local governments. The local governments would have to work it out themselves. And that's so much of that has happened since 2016, when the first local government declared, you know, a climate emergency and a lot, you know, councils grouped together to work out big economy of scale strategies they could pursue and so on. So that was really positive. And we're all dealing with bushfires right now. There's one just down the road that my husband's working on and um, it's, it's started already. So I think local government is really at the forefront of seeing the actual impacts as well. Um, LeMay, LeMay, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, um, what are good large-scale drawdown processes so that we can all engage in or encourage our groups to get involved in? Well, I mean, look, the obvious ones are the natural-based solutions. So uh, restoration of degraded forests uh, is really important. Uh, restoration of, of degraded wetlands uh, is important. So um, I guess, uh, you know, the first thing to do is, is to undo the damage before you move forward. We, we say, oh, we've got to do this, but undo the damage which is being done because the degradation of forests, the degradation of wetlands is actually driving more emissions, more methane. Uh, so they're, they're obviously the big ones and, and all those issues around um, uh, restorative farming, restoring ag restorative agricultural uh, practices, because all three are available. They're being done now. They can be done at large scale and they're not controversial. So that that would be my, my starting trio. And I'd, I'd add um, agricultural transitions um, that reduce the amount of animals that we produce uh, towards plant-based agriculture releases a large amount of land that's currently used for um, grazing uh, cows that can be revegetated and rewilded. Australia, in Queensland in particular, 
currently and a couple of years ago had the largest levels of deforestation anywhere in the world, including in the Amazon, where they were destroying forests um, at an incredible rate. And that was largely for animal agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Look, there's some great comments in the stream. I can't read them all, so apologies to everyone. It's so great to see the engagement. Um, I was actually at a talk on Monday. Where Ken Henry was giving about accounting for nature. That's a little bit, you know, controversial, I think, because we're still looking at um, offsets where we destroy something while we save something. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole talk around regenerative agriculture is really gaining traction, traction and farmers for climate action, they're very heavily involved mm -hmm. in all of that conversation as well. So the really exciting thing is lots of people are getting engaged in all sorts of areas on all sorts of platforms. But the exciting thing for me is actually now learning about the work that you're all doing. And um, this is this is great. It's, it's great stuff. It's very hopeful. So we are kind of at the end of the presentations now, unless the working group or David, you wanted to have any final um, comments, I will wrap up with with the clear message that we really want to get across. Okay, so one of the key things is campaigning vanquishes despair. We all know when we get active, um, as I say, November, um, rising tide, Newcastle port blockade, be there if you can. Um, the climate grief, it leads to climate action. It means that we actually get involved and obviously you're on this live stream because you're involved and you're already invested. So thank you to everybody and all the work that you're doing out there. People who struggle at the fringes often turn out to be the leaders and um, the leadership that we see through the Women's Environmental Leadership um, Australia organisation and the programs is always inspiring. So check that out if you'd like to have a look at what's going on with Weller. Very proud of, of, of the group. And what will be our legacy as the human race? And we have run out of time now to do the same old, same old. I've been to every politician in both parliament houses and, um, you know, it, it, they cannot get out of there. No one can put the spoke in the wheel. And I actually say to them, you're morally culpable for not acting. And I think that moral culpability is a word we should have on our lips when we're not aggressively but firmly, assertively saying you are morally culpable if you don't act as a leader in a position of power. So the next steps, a short email will go to everyone attending with links and the opportunities to get involved. Sign up to the newsletter at climaterescue.net. All of these links will be in the newsletter email that you receive. The working group will be looking for interested people to join an executive committee to shape the accord going forward. Anyone interested, please get in touch. And just seeing some of the names on the live stream, there's some wealth of um, experience and brilliance out there. So please get in touch. Talk to others about Climate Rescue and the three R's. If the Knitting Nanas are talking about it all over New South Wales, we should be too. We can have hope with a goal and strategy that is actually meaningful and meaningful campaigning, as we said before, vanquishes despair. And most importantly, we want everyone, every party, every candidate and everybody that works with them to be campaigning on the three R's, reduce, redraw and repair. Climate Rescue survival and a safe climate so get involved thank you to our panel it's been really fabulous um, and the work that you're doing is to be applauded and thank you to everybody that's joined the live stream tonight so 
go and have a good evening and get involved. You probably are already, but we need you in this as well. Thank you.